All right. Grab your seats. You're practicing what I just asked you. You're being kind. Thank you, thank you. Grab your seats. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Nehemiah chapter two. As Pastor Brady would say, if you can find Nehemiah in under 30 seconds, you're going to heaven. Uh, so anyway, if you've gone to the Psalms, you've gone too far. If you go to the Psalms and then go back and you get to Ezra, you've gone too far. It's right after Ezra, toward the middle of the book, Nehemiah chapter two. But before we get started, two announcements. This week is Pastor Brady's 15th anniversary of being our pastor. <laughs> pastor Brady and Pam. So you'll see the lobbies decorated on Sunday. We're gonna throw a big party for them after the service. So if you're around, come celebrate with us. We thank God for Brady and Pam Boyd saying yes to Jesus and yes to Colorado Springs. So there's that. That's why the lobby's all beautiful. Second announcement, we've got some, uh, some legends in the room tonight. We've got Rachel, Josiah, Hadassah, and Caleb. Would you stand if you're here? Okay, so these four Young people, are, just three of the four are here tonight. They just got back from Palm Springs where they were at the National Bible Championships. You didn't know, listen, hang on. You didn't know that was a thing, but that's the thing for us church kids. You know, as pastors' kids, church kids grew up, you know. So they just won the national championship, those four. Those four. Okay, so here's how they started the competition. Verbatim, they quoted the book of Matthew, 28 chapters, 52 minutes, verbatim. Didn't miss a word. These guys are freaks of nature. And that was just getting started to see if they could advance. And then they just dominated everyone. They said, put that in your Bible and smoke it, you know? So good job, you guys. We love you, we bless you. Come take my job from me in Jesus' name. All right, give it up one more time. The book of Matthew. Some of you are like, I haven't even read the book of Matthew. <laughs> Let alone memorized it. Okay, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, Nehemiah chapter two, what I'm gonna do is read you 10 verses and then I'll pray and we'll jump in. So hear the word of the Lord out of Nehemiah chapter two. It reads like this, in the month of Nizan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for the king, Nehemiah is writing, this is his little memoir, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before because you don't really act sad in the presence of the king. So the king asked me, hey Nehemiah, why does your face look so sad and when you are not ill? I know you're in good health, what's wrong with you? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried, now flag that, where my ancestors are buried. When the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire and the king said to me, what is it that you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. This is his moment. And I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, let the king send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried. Flag that phrase. So that I can rebuild it. Then the king said, with the queen sitting beside, beside him, he, he asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? 
It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. Let me pass through. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and I gave them the king's letters and the king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me to protect me and when Sanballat and Tobiah, uh, Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. This is the word of the Lord and all God's people said, thanks be to God, let's pray. Oh God, Make us like Nehemiah tonight. May the gracious hand of our God be upon us. As we open the scriptures, may your hand be upon us. As we worship, may your hand be upon us. As children are being instructed right now by Katie and a whole team of volunteers, may your gracious hand be upon them tonight. Lord, have your way in this place, in this building. We've given up our Friday night not to be entertained and not because we didn't have something else to do. We're here because we believe that you're the God who speaks and when you speak, everything changes. So speak, speak to us tonight. Lord, I pray that I would decrease, that you might increase. I pray that your word would race through this place unhindered and we rebuke every attack of the enemy every assignment to distract and to kill, steal, kill, and destroy, and all the confusion that the enemy comes to just steal the seed of the word of God, we rebuke it in Jesus' name, and we thank you that this is a no-fly zone for the enemy tonight. It's quiet in here that we could hear the voice of God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen. amen. The question I wanna ask tonight is, what do you do when your heart is broken? What do you do when your heart is broken? And I think that's where we pick the story up tonight in Nehemiah chapter two. Last week we talked about Hanani coming from Jerusalem to the foreign country, southwest Iran, where Nehemiah is in exile. Nehemiah has never been to Jerusalem. Nehemiah was born in exile. So the people of God broke faith with Yahweh. They were stripped away into Assyria and then to Babylon. And now they find themselves in Persia as exiles. And Nehemiah only knows Persia. So he's working as the cupbearer to the king. And he's in the king's palace. And Hanani comes and says, Jerusalem's been torn down. The gates have been burned with fire. The walls are destroyed. There's no economy. The poor are broke. It's just, it's a total mess. And something breaks in Nehemiah's heart. He can't get Jerusalem out of his mind. Again, a place he's never been. He's only heard about from his ancestors. They told him the Torah. They taught him the law and the precepts and his heart breaks at the news of Jerusalem. So he prays and he rehearses God's faithfulness in the past and he repents in the present and he renews covenant toward the future. Nehemiah in chapter one, it, it, something shifts in him. But at the beginning of chapter two, his heart is still broken. And it says that I was cupbearer to the king. We get the sense that Nehemiah is going to storm in and shake things up. Hanani comes, he tells him what's going on in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah has unbroken access to the king. The king knows him well enough to know that his face is sad. The king is his guy. 
And even though he's a foreigner, even though he's there in exile, they've struck up this bond. And so you think he hears about Jerusalem and it's game time. I'm storming into the king's room and I'm gonna tell him what's up and let's go to Jerusalem. But, But that's not what happens in this text. The first thing that we see in chapter two is that Nehemiah waits. He waits, which is so strange because, come on, let's be an activator. Once you've heard, you're accountable, and let's get going and, and rise up and let's you know, take the bull by the horns. But Nehemiah doesn't, he doesn't do that. He, the first thing he does is he waits. From the time he hears the news of the destruction of Jerusalem to the time that he talks with the king is over 100 days. Minimum, it's 100 days and maybe quite a bit longer. Chapter one opens in the month of Kislev and chapter two opens in the month of Nizan and we know at least that's 100 days and this is, I wanna tell you about this waiting thing in the life of faith. This is just how it goes. And I hate it. (laughs) Waiting is the way you get made into a wise human being. Waiting is like a fire that purges and and purifies your intentions and waiting is the way that other people can know that you're serious and you're not flighty. Waiting is the way, one of the ways that God can know that he can trust you. Waiting is one of the ways that your fiance can know that she can trust you. We're just gonna go there tonight. Waiting is one of the ways that you move from being a starter to a finisher because it's so easy to be a starter. It's so easy to be motivated. It's so easy to see an inspiring video on Instagram and have your heart break for the poor for like 12 seconds and then you go to In-N-Out and you gorge yourself. (laughs) It's so easy to be a starter. It's very difficult to become a finisher in the kingdom of God. And how does God turn us into finishers? He teaches us through a waiting period. Waiting is everywhere in the Bible. Abraham and Sarah waited 25 years for Isaac. I have blessed you and I will make you a blessing and through your offspring. I'm 75 and my wife is 65 and we've been trying for 40 years and it ain't working. Through your offspring, I will bless all the nations of the earth. And at 100 years old and at 90 years old, Abraham and Sarah become parents. Waiting is one of the ways that God makes us into someone. Rebecca waited 20 years for Jacob and Esau, and the people of God waited 400 years for the promised land in Egypt, crying out, God have mercy, and, 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 and Hannah waited for Samuel for years, and David waited 15 years from the time that they broke open the horn of oil and anointed him as the king of Israel. Saul is still on the throne. David receives the oil, and God speaks, this is a man after my own heart, and then he waits 15 years to become the king, waiting is how God makes us into something. I hate it, but this is how it works. Jesus waited 30 years to do anything of significance. (laughs) It's crazy. If I'm God, I wanna be efficient, so I send my son, my one and only son, born of the Virgin Mary, and he's walking around the playground just zapping people with life healing blind and raising the dead. He's three years old, the wonder kid. And boom, taking over Palestine with glory. And, he's, and he's, he's doing all of this wonder. Thank you, Preem. I know when you're in the house. I love having you in the house, Preem. I mean, Jesus should have just lit it up. 
What we know about Jesus in the first 30 years is he got circumcised on the eighth day, he got lost to church when he was 12, and then he goes dark. 30 years until he goes out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil after being baptized and the spirit falls on him. And we know about three years of his, of his, of his ministry. So I'll just say like if, 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 uh, if we know about one eleventh of Jesus's life, you better get used to waiting. If you aren't ready to live 91% of your life in patient anonymity like Jesus, you aren't ready to follow Jesus. 91% is, you know, one eleventh, right? Uh, 10 elevenths, you get the point, right? <laughs> Hooked on phonics worked for me. I was at all the Bible championships. I was at, I was, I was at the Bible championships, not in math. 10 elevenths we know nothing about. 91% of his life is lived in patient anonymity. If this is who Jesus is, get used to waiting. Jesus told his disciples, wait in Jerusalem, Acts chapter one. On one occasion, Jesus had just been raised from the dead and he's about to ascend to the right hand of the Father. While Jesus was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift that my father has promised. Waiting is endemic to the life of faith. And Paul waited in several prison dungeons. Paul was shipwrecked. Paul spent a night in the sea all by himself floating out there just trying to tread water to live before someone sent a lifeboat. Paul is in dungeons all over the Mediterranean world and he was promised that he'd be a prophet to the nations. He'd be the apostle that would call people out of darkness and into marvelous light. And what does he do? He gets locked up time and time again because God makes us into something while we wait. Nobody gets out of it, not even Nehemiah. So if you aren't willing to wait, you won't be fit for the kingdom work. And in our 21st century American moment, hurry is one of the greatest hindrances to the life of faith. Hurry. But in those hundred days, Nehemiah begins to be thoroughly saturated with intercession. In those hundred days, he hears from Hanani, and then he takes it into his prayer closet, and he falls on his face, and he says, oh God, have mercy on your people. God, remember what you told Abram and Sarai, and God, remember what you told Moses, and God, remember what you told Joshua, and God, remember what you promised. You said that you would give them a land flowing with milk and honey, and now the gates are burned with fire, and the walls have been torn down. God, do not forget your promise promises, in a hundred days, Nehemiah became something. He moved from being a starter to a finisher in his prayer closet. So friends, if God has you in a waiting season, I say, welcome to the life of faith. And I say, don't waste it. Live it before the Lord. Open yourself up. Nehemiah, the first thing we see in chapter two is that he waits. The second thing, what happens, the second movement in this story is that Nehemiah goes to work. Nehemiah works. He walks in to do his job every day as cupbearer to the king. With his heart broken, he works. And in this sort of dream job environment in which we live, where we're all looking for the most beautiful scenario where it just all coalesces and comes together and there's just rainbows and, and unicorns and butterflies and tiptoeing through the tulips and it's just excellent and beautiful and gorgeous, I'm just here to say that that's not really how it works. Sometimes you have to go to work when your heart is broken. 
And I didn't plan on saying this until Kyle walked off the stage, but it, it hit me tonight. And I, and I opened up with tears just 10 minutes ago when Kyle, who was leading worship over here with the guitar and the hat, Kyle led us tonight into the presence of the Lord. On Tuesday, one of the most important men in his life, his grandpa, who he is locked in with, his grandpa just suddenly died in a bicycle accident. Just, and we said to Kyle, Kyle, Go, bro, do whatever you need. Get on a plane, we'll buy the ticket. Like, don't, do whatever you need. You tell us, and Kyle said, I- I've gotta come to the presence of the Lord. I gotta, I've gotta lead God's people in worship. Kyle, we honor you, we bless you, we're heartbroken with you. We pray God's peace over you. Sometimes what you see is that when, when your heart is broken, you, you, you just keep. You keep taking the next step. You just, you get out of bed in the morning saying, Lord, what does faithfulness look like today? And Lord, I I entrust my life into your care. And Lord, I have no idea where the future's going. But Lord, I'm here and my life is on the table. And, and, And he didn't, Nehemiah didn't waste his season of waiting. He went to work. He started building, and sometimes going to work and getting back up is, is a statement of faith. And, and look, Kyle maybe should have gone. Like, I, he, I'm not saying that this is how you gotta do it every time. Some, and he's gonna take a break, right? You need to take a season of grief, and you need to mourn, and you need to be comforted, and you need to walk away from it. You need to care for yourself. But, but Nehemiah, what you see is he goes, you know what, I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't stop. I've just gotta keep putting one foot in front of the other, and this is what he does. He, he waits and then he works. This is the season where your prayers must turn into plans. Nehemiah doesn't sit pat, he doesn't, he doesn't go dormant, he doesn't lay down, he doesn't get soft. What he does in this moment is he, 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 he stands up from the prayer room and he turns his prayers into plans. He starts working and he starts building a future, his prep work, and it says in verse five through nine, and. And I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild. I want to ask, what kind of work does Nehemiah do in this season of waiting? In this intervening period, what does he do? How do we see him going to work? Well, first, Nehemiah knows the religion of the Persians. He, again, he's living in southwest Iran. He's not in Jerusalem. He knows, he's studied, he's paid attention. How in the world can I get through to the king? Because the king is, is, is not for Jerusalem. So how do I, he studies, their, he studies their religion and he realizes that they're superstitious about their dead ancestors, the Persians. The ancient Persians were superstitious about their dead ancestors. And their cemeteries were these lush, beautiful gardens that were overflowing and they had water treatment going through the, the gardens. And, and it was a bad omen if you walked into a cemetery and it wasn't just airtight and perfectly manicured. For the Persians, they cared more about their dead than they cared about the Israelite living. And so Nehemiah pays attention to this. And he goes, uh, O king, would you send me back to the city where my ancestors are buried? Because I know you care about that. It, for, for decades, my people have been just slugging it out in Jerusalem and, and they're impoverished and you, that hasn't moved your heart. So I'm gonna try this. King, would you send me back to Jerusalem where my ancestors, I have ancestors too, and they're buried and their cemeteries are destroyed and it's not proper that we leave it that way. And the king goes, you're exactly right. 
That's right, it's a desecration that your cemeteries back in Jerusalem. My heart is not moved with compassion about much, but you talk to me about these cemeteries, that's a bad omen. And so what does he do? He, He begins to be moved with compassion because Nehemiah did his work to know how to break through. Can you see this? He didn't waste his season of waiting. Nehemiah knows that it's a public holiday. This this day when he goes in, it's a public holiday and the king's wife is sitting right next to him. He's on his throne and she's on her throne right next to him and that wouldn't have been customary for her to be there. He picks a day when the king's wife is there because he knows she's going to help. And it's a public holiday and we're happy. And you see that the king says to Nehemiah, why are you so sad? So he finds him on a day when he knows the king's gonna be happy and his wife is going to be there and the king notices the sadness of his heart. Nehemiah does not waste his season of waiting. He goes to work and he intercedes and the spirit of the Lord begins to break through his life to the king's hard heart. Nehemiah knows that it's, he knows his political history from the past because just 20 years earlier, King Artaxerxes sent this reply. To Rahum, the commanding officer, and this is in the book of Ezra. To Shimshai, the secretary, and the rest of their associates living in Samaria. And to everyone in the trans-Euphrates region, the king is sending out an edict to every political leader in the region because this is the big dog. Artaxerxes says, greetings. The letter you sent us has been read and translated in my presence, and I issued an order, and a search was made, and it was found that this city, Jerusalem, has a long history of revolt against kings and has been a place of rebellion and sedition. Jerusalem has had powerful kings ruling over the whole of trans-Euphrates, and taxes and tribute and duty were paid to them. Now issue an order, Artaxerxes, the same king says, now issue an order to these men to stop the work so that this city, Jerusalem, will not be rebuilt. He understands that this king, maybe 15 years or two decades ago, said, shut it down. Do not rebuild Jerusalem. Jerusalem's dangerous. They've had their time in the sun and they've dominated the region around here. Shut it down. Do not rebuild Jerusalem. So the last thing he said about Jerusalem is let it lie in ruins. Nehemiah takes his life into his hands and he studied the ancient religion of the Persians and he's found the king on a holiday with his wife next to him on a joyful day and he also knows that the king is already predisposed toward hating Jerusalem and so he's done his homework. Friends, don't waste your season of waiting. This is the time where you can get to work in a fresh way. Nehemiah does this. Nehemiah knows the names of all the leaders. Some of you are like, why are you building this case? Because it's important. He, he, build, he knows all the leaders, the tradesmen, and the, the, the people working in the department of the forestry. He's gotten down into the trees, or, or you know, the weeds. You know? He, like, he understands who is in charge of the forestry because he, he knows he needs that timber. And so he's done his homework. He's made notes so that when he stands before the king on a holiday with his wife there, knowing that he already hates Jerusalem, you do not show up unprepared. You have one chance, and it might mean your life. So he says, would you give me letters? And he starts naming all the names and he's come with a budget and he's come with a five-year performa and he's come with a profit and loss statement and he's come, he knows what he needs and he takes his one shot because Nehemiah has done his homework. He's got general contractors lined up. He knows what kind of timber he needs. He gets legislation passed and the king writes letters to all those political leaders and turns Nehemiah loose. Don't waste your waiting. Go to work. Final thing is Nehemiah had built a friendship with the king. 
He wasn't schmoozing. He wasn't working it. He wasn't manipulating. He was just being a man of God, showing up faithfully, doing his thing, honoring the Lord, being an excellent worker. And the king over time falls in love with this, this kid from Jerusalem, this kid who's got the Hebrew blood running through him. He goes, look, you're our arch enemies, but I like you. I like you, Nehemiah. Nehemiah has done his work to build a friendship. So I'll just say, God will catch your responsibilities up with what your life already looks like. Think about this. Nehemiah did not wait around and say, God, finally, when you give me influence one day, then I'll start working, and then I'll do my homework, and then I'll figure out how to write a budget, and then I'll find out who's in charge of the Department of Forestry, and then I'll do my homework on the religion of the Persians, and then I'll find out what's going on in Jerusalem. No, Nehemiah has done all of this work so that when the moment comes, God knows that he can trust him, and then God turns him loose. Don't wait for God to give you permission to, and, and to organize everything like Assume that along the way, the Lord will hear your cry and then the dam will break and the water will flow. Nehemiah has done his homework so that when the moment comes, he steps in and he has favor from God and he has favor from the king and it's downhill from here. He starts heading to Jerusalem. I wanna ask you tonight, what, what does this look like for you? What is the great work that the Lord has asked you to do? What is this thing that some of you go, it's not rebuilding, I wish it was this, some of you go, it's just me rebuilding my family of origin, which is a great work. It's just me, I, I'm retired and I've got three days a week where I can help with my grandkids for a morning. That is a building a great work. Some of you go, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just a tax accountant, or I'm just working over here, or I'm just doing this. No, all of us, God has called us to do a great work. So my, my question to you tonight is, in this season of waiting, what is God asking you to do? What kind of work is he putting in front of you? How are you building for the future? How are you preparing? How are you getting yourself positioned so that God can watch your life and say, you have been faithful with a little, and now I will make you ruler over much. Do not waste your season of waiting. Let's get to work. Philip Henry, a 17th century Englishman, said, when we cannot do what we would like, we must do what we can. The end game for Nehemiah was Jerusalem. He wasn't there, so he did what he could. And he showed up, and he studied, and he prayed, and he was faithful. And one mysterious day, the spirit of the Lord falls on him and the king's heart opens up and he's on his way to Jerusalem. Don't waste your season of waiting. The third thing that we see in this text is Nehemiah, he, he waits and then he works, but then finally Nehemiah gives witness. There is a great moment that will come for all of us at different times in our lives, the Lord will create these moments, what, what Bible people would say like as kairos moments, where like God's time and our time crash together, when heaven and earth meet, when, when there's this like pregnant moment, after you've waited and prayed and after you've worked and prepared at some strange moment, an opportune time arises. The same king that saw Nehemiah for years, on that day he saw something different. Why are you so sad? How can I help you? You're my friend, what can I do to leverage my strength for you? An opportune time comes, and in that moment, Nehemiah gives witness. It says in verse two, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king. 
I was very much afraid. And, and, and look, anytime I've had one of these big Kairos moments where I know it's like we've got something to rebuild and, and, and life around here has been lying in ruins and there's this big moment that the Lord is creating, every time I know that the Lord is leading me to that moment, it feels like I'm going to die. Like if I have this conversation, this might cost me everything or I might lose my, or I might just, I might lose my friends or is, are they gonna reject me or, or are they gonna think I'm an idiot? Have you ever been to one of those moments where it scared the heck out of you to say what you know the Lord had called you to say? Welcome to the story of the life of faith. I was very much afraid, but then I said to the king, you've got to keep showing up when you're afraid. <laughs> When you're afraid, you've got to trust God and take the risk. When you're afraid, you've got to say the difficult thing. When you're afraid, you've got to be willing to put your life on the line. Nehemiah could have and maybe should have died that day, but God was with him. I was very much afraid, but then I said to the king, a moment that is pregnant with spirit and begins to contract and toil and, and labor within you and it's time to give birth. And honestly, this is really just the metaphor that comes to my mind with the story of Nehemiah. That he's waiting, it's, a, it's like a pregnancy. God has caused something to be conceived in his spirit about the city of Jerusalem and its, and its dilapidated ruinous state. Something has, Hanani came and, and just like something leapt in him. That day, something changed, and he waited, and he prayed, just like, like people who are pregnant expecting their first child, and they're asking questions, and they're dreaming, and is it going to be a boy or a girl, and what should we name her, or what should we name him, or, you know, you're just waiting, and you're praying, and you're dreaming, and you don't know where this is going, but you know that something is moving around on the inside of you. This is where it started for Nehemiah. But it shifted into this season of working and preparing. Like every parent th that discovers a child's coming, they know they've got to get a crib and they've got to get a car seat and they've got to get 75 million other things. You've got to get the diapers and you've got to paint the room. You've got to read books and you've got to go to classes and you've got to watch videos that are embarrassing and, and, and make you blush and you know you're going to faint. I almost fainted when Lillian was born and they got out that big long needle and they clicked it, you know, and the little juice came out or whatever. And, 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 I was, and the doctor said, why don't you sit down on the bed next to your wife? And I felt like such a sissy. <laughs> but that's where we started. I crushed it the next two times. But, but you know, that, like, you're working and you're preparing and it's like, you're like nesting and we've got all this stuff. You, don't, you can't just wait while you're pregnant. You've got to work. You've gotta get ready for the life that God is sending your way, that God is growing in you, that God is going to entrust. So, so you, you wait and you pray and you work and you prepare, but the third phase, there is this moment where it's time to give witness to what God is doing on the inside of you. And it is just a miraculous, mysterious, magical, unbelievable. I've seen it happen three times with Lisa where it's like she's excited and then she's working and then she get the heck out of my way <laughs> because we're about to have a baby. And she, like, it's just this something shifts. And I, I, I saw Lisa one day, I've, I've told this story before, the day Lillian was born, she was running foul poles at the, the, the baseball field and, you know, butt kickers. Like, she's 
40 weeks pregnant, just, and she's running sprints and doing squats, and she's get out of my way, and she's fixing things, and, and she's hanging new furniture at the house, and she's, everything is it's beast mode. It, it comes time to give witness, and then we went to the hospital, and it's just... Some of you are like, don't do that when, when you're talking about your wife. <laughs> the baby wasn't breech. Everything's fine. But she just shifted into this zone where she was very focused and very quiet, but she was determined. It was time to give witness. God does something in us in the season of waiting and through our season of working and preparation and all the stuff that we do to partner with God, but there is this moment when you only have one thing and one thing to do, which is it's time to give birth to this baby. It's time to go to Jerusalem. It's time to rebuild this wall. And it's scary. And it feels like it's gonna cost you everything, but Nehemiah showed that he was ready after his season of gestation, after his season of waiting and working, and it was time to give witness. We see this with Jesus. Jesus waited. 91% of his life on earth, 33 years, we just don't know much about, but he's waiting for God's spirit to fall on him afresh. He's waiting for that moment where it's time to get in the waters. He's waiting for that moment to go out into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. He's waiting and he's faithful in his waiting and then he's, he's been doing his work. He's healing the sick and raising the dead and the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them and Jesus feeds the 5,000. Jesus doesn't sit around. He, he rises even when his heart is broken. He steps into the work time and time again but there's this moment where it comes time to give witness and Jesus picks up a cross. Like Nehemiah picked up his tools and walked a thousand miles from southwest Iran over to Jerusalem to begin a great work of rebuilding a city. And Jesus climbs and takes the cross and goes up Golgotha and he, he's here to rebuild the world. He's here to rebuild our lives. He's here to rebuild the fractured nations. He's here to, to turn enemies as friends. Jesus is here in this moment. And so I say to you tonight, friends, in your season of waiting, welcome to the life of faith. But in your season of waiting, don't squander it. Ask the Lord what it looks like to partner with him, to be prepared, to have done your homework so that when the moment comes, you are ready and favor breaks open for you. But there will come that great time where it's time to give witness, where it's time to give birth, where it's time where everything else shuts down and there's one job in front of you. It's time to rebuild the city. And so tonight, friends, as we come to prepare to receive from the Lord, I wanna invite you to get focused on that great work. Some of you know right away what it is. You, you know you've got great work to do on a friendship that's been fractured. You know that you've got great work to do on a marriage that, that it feels threadbare and kind of fragile. You know that there's great work to do in, in pressing into this diagnosis that you, you've had and there's difficulty and there's pain. You know that there's great work in rebuilding that prodigal child who has come home. They're home, thank God, but now we've got a future of rebuilding. Some of you have a great work in your heart of taking care of the elderly or taking care of the poor. Moms with no health care in our city like Dream Centers is doing. Whatever that work is, I want you to put yourself before the Lord tonight and ask him what he wants to say to you. Ask him what he's asking you to do in this moment of waiting. What kind of work do you need to engage in to be prepared for that moment of the great work? Holy Spirit, we invite you tonight. 
Would you invite the Lord to speak to you? Maybe some of you, you know it's time to start praying again. You've had a season in your life where you were, you were familiar with prayer and you had a routine and you maybe even fast every once in a while, but you just got comfortable and maybe just a little bit sloppy or you got a little bit busy and life stacks up and you know that your work of recovery is going back to that place of prayer. For some of you, you know that you've got to start engaging again and volunteering again. You know that you've got to reach out for friendship again or find a group again. You know that you've got to open the scriptures up again. You've, you've fallen out of love with the Bible. Some of you, you just know what the Lord is asking of you tonight. So Lord, we say, speak to us about that great work. Would you tell us what to do? Would you give us a sense of timing like you did with Nehemiah? He knew the right day, he waited, he waited, he waited, he waited, but then there was this moment, I pray, for a divine sense of timing for us. To know when to take the risk, to know when to make the phone call, to know when to step out, to know when to write the letter. Lord, would you show us what it looks like to be faithful in our waiting? Would you show us what it looks like to be diligent in our work? And Lord, would you make us ready for that moment when it's time to give witness? So Lord, I pray for this congregation tonight. Make us a people ready for the great work. Church, would you stand with me tonight? If you would get your communion elements ready to receive. and If you don't have communion elements, just raise your hand. We've got teams all over the room that are gonna come running to you with elements. I'm gonna wait just a minute while everyone gets served. Think about what Jesus is doing here. On the night he was betrayed, he gathered his friends. And Jesus is getting ready to go do his great work. And the reason we're here tonight is because he was faithful in that work. But he also knows he's got a table full of his friends who are about to be thrust into their great work. Jesus rising and ascending means it's game time for them. And so he feeds them the bread and he gives them the cup to drink as a way of strengthening them and preparing them and making them ready for the great work. So tonight, would you close your eyes and imagine yourself? I want you to see Jesus. I want you to see his eyes. I want you to picture being at the table that night, that dark Good Friday, Monday Thursday. It's crunch time and Jesus is with you. What does he look like? Does he look mad? Or is he compassionate? Sure, he, he's focused. There's work to be done, but he's got the composure to create a meal and to invite us. And Jesus, picture it. See it with your, with your mind's eye. See it with your spirit tonight. Jesus reaches across the table with the, the loaf of bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my, hey, you, look at me. This is my body, which is broken for you. And as often as you do this, Remember, you're gonna be okay. 
I'm for you. I'm with you. I'll satisfy you. I'll feed you. I'll provide for you. This is my body, which is broken for you. You may break that wafer. And friends, Jesus is for you. Would you receive him tonight as you receive this bread? Welcome Jesus afresh. On the same night, he took the cup of wine. He said, this cup is the new covenant given in my blood. And it's given for the remission of your sins. And as often as you do this, do this for the remembrance of me. Friends, Jesus has forgiven you. You are clean, you are clean, you are clean, you are clean, you are clean. Not because we're awesome, because Jesus is wonderful and merciful and forgiving and he wants to re-engage you in the great work tonight. And so he's forgiving you, he's washing you clean and he's sending you and me back out into the great work. Friends, you may receive forgiveness from Jesus. The cup is yours. Let's worship the Lord together. Shines for all to 
go back into singing this, but I want to pray for everyone living in the middle of heartbrokenness and grief right now. I want my, some of my friends to come up and cir circle up Kyle right here. We're going to lay hands on him tonight, leading us in worship. And I'm asking for new spiritual authority to fall on this guy tonight for his sacrifice, for his, for his laying down his life tonight. Lay hands on him. And others of you who are grieving right now, and if you feel like you're comfortable raising your hand saying, I need someone to lay hands on my shoulder. Right over here, we got women of God, Tyler. If that's you, if you see someone raising their hand, would you lay your hands on them right now and begin to speak the comfort of the Holy Spirit over them tonight? The peace of God. We're gonna, we're gonna erupt here in a minute in worship, but just hang one second and let's pray. That, Lord, we pray, comfort those who are in their time of mourning right now. And we say to you, you will not fall in Jesus' name. This thing will not kill you. This thing will not cause you to collapse. This thing will not be the end of your story. And so, Lord, we pray for supernatural power to rise in them. We pray for strength to rise in them. Lord, we pray for the, the comfort of the Spirit to surround them. Lord, in seasons where they need to grieve, Give them permission to grieve and to cry and to wail and to mourn and to live in, in your presence with all of their emotions. Not shutting down or truncating any of those emotions. Lord, we pray that you would open up the wellspring within them and cause them to feel, Lord, I pray that you would lead them into the way of everlasting life, that they will not lack, that this will not be the end of their story. And so, Lord, we pray, encourage them tonight by the Spirit. We pray, Lord, cause them to rise. We pray, Lord, that they would get their song back and that they would get their joy back and that they would get their dance back and that they would get their power back. Lord, pour out your Spirit on all of the heartbroken saints here at New Life Friday night. And we pray, Lord, your kingdom come and your will be done for them on the earth as it is in heaven. By your spirit, I will rise. Come on, church. By your spirit, I will rise from the ashes. Let's go for it. Come on. The resurrected king is resurrected me. In your name, I come.
by your spirit. Come on. By your spirit. Would you open your hands tonight, church, to receive the blessing of God, all of you being sent out with fresh power, fresh grace, fresh joy, fresh hope for the future. Let hope rise. Jerusalem's walls will not always be torn down gates will not always be burned with fire. There will be life in that city again. There will be life in your life again. There will be life in your friendships again. There will be life in your body again. There will be life in your marriage again for those of you who are married. There will be life at the workplace. There will be life in the home. There will be life in the neighborhood. Life, 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 life. So Lord, I pray for my friends. Bless them, bless them, bless them, bless them, bless them. Bless them and keep them. Make your face to shine upon them and be gracious to them. Lord, lift your bright smile and countenance upon them and grant them peace, we pray tonight in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said. Can we give God thanks for what he's done here tonight? Beautiful, beautiful time. I want to say a couple things. Our prayer team is coming down. We would love to agree with any of you about prayer needs you might have. You can get signed up for children's ministry if you want to serve, like Katie talked about tonight. Guest Central's in the back, and we've got Kona ice and all the treats and all the stuff to dope your kids up on sugar. So hang around. Let's enjoy being together tonight. Go from here in God's grace and peace. Much love.